Hello and welcome to this episode of the SergiWatts podcast. In today's episode, I spoke to Mercedes Tin, who's an investment manager at Bond Ventures, a venture capital firm, a sovereign fund who has multiple investments in surgical robotics. In this episode, we ask questions like, what are the best entrepreneurs doing at this time to secure investment? What's going on in the funding market? Are we really seeing a tough market or are we just returning to normality? What are entrepreneurs doing to stand out and much, much more? So I hope you enjoy the insights from this episode. Hello, Mercedes, and welcome to the Sergibots podcast. Hi, Henry. Thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. So to kick off with, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do? Sure. So um, my name is Mercedes, and I am a venture capital investor for a Dutch sovereign fund. Um, my background is actually in biomedical sciences. So, um, with respect to all the surgical robotics investments that we do, I'm usually the only non-engineer at the table. Um, I wanted to become a virologist, which is why I started studying biomedical sciences. But actually, yeah, as soon as I entered the university and started doing some lab work and, and, and some uh, research, I just kept wondering, uh, what are we doing with this? How can we translate this into services or products that improve patients' lives. But back then, the especially the Dutch ecosystem wasn't geared towards uh, commercialization. Some people would say it still isn't, but that's a different topic. So that is the path I started pursuing, helping, um, helping the academics to translate their results into products and services. And that is called tech transfer or valorization. But um, when I when I finished university, it, it wasn't it didn't really exist in the Netherlands. So over the years I've worked with uh, universities in the UK as well as in the Netherlands to uh, to improve and, and, and to execute their tech transfer strategies. And that has resulted in several spin-out companies being uh, formed, both on the medtech side as well as on the biotech and pharma side. And I've also um, set up several major uh, funding programs for proof of concept funding or university industry collaborations. So I've got quite a diverse background in that sense, but it's always been at the early stage um, uh, uh, academic research a commercialization space, so to say. So that sort of fits in with what I'm doing now. Cool. So tell me more about BOM. So B-O-M is the venture capital firm you work for. So tell me all about it. Yeah, sure. So BOM um, stands for um, uh, the, the Brabant Development Agency, which is a, a regional organization that is all about increasing the local economy, so the position of the local economy. And uh, we have a we have the ability to invest. So we have several funds from which we invest. And we're basically, you, you, the easiest way of saying it is that we're a sovereign venture capital fund, right? So there are uh, several of those in the Netherlands uh, that each cover their uh, respective region. Uh, we also have a larger sovereign venture capital fund, which is called Investinel, and they uh, do bigger investments and they can cover uh, the entirety of the Netherlands. 
So I joined BOM five years ago um, and taking all of that knowledge on the early stage commercialization and setting up spin out companies uh, with me because a lot of the companies that we invest in are actually uh, academic spin out companies. So due to our ticket sizes and, and, and due to the gap uh, in, in sort of investing and commercialization in the Netherlands, we were an early stage investor. And where some other funds would take early, that to us is quite late. So we are in the proof concept pre-seed seed stage is usually where we step in. So um, we do tickets from about 200,000 euros up to 5 million euros over the lifetime of a company. Now, a lot of people would say we're a small fund, um, but it, I kind of see it as, as a bit of an in-betweeny fund because we can do smaller tickets, but we can also join into um, a Series B funding round. And then we're talking about European Series B funding rounds uh, where we can sort of make the crossover to the larger funds that can contribute like 10 or 15 million euros in a round. So we have an investment um, strategy where we invest in uh, several verticals, one of which is life sciences and medtech. Uh, we do that with a team of seven. And within the life science and medtech space, we invest in three verticals. So one is life sciences, so novel therapeutics, novel diagnostics, um, in vitro diagnostics, the, or in vivo. And the, um, uh, the second is health technology. So anything that improves the delivery of healthcare. Um, and the third is medtech. And within medtech, we have a distinct focus on surgical robotics, but also technologies that improve surgery so that would fit into a surgical robotics suite. Absolutely. So tell me about some of the surgical robotics investments that you've got in the portfolio. Yeah, sure. So we have um, a couple of companies that are specifically surgical robotics. And then, like I said, we have a couple of companies in our investment portfolio that would fit into a robotics suite. So looking at our... Um, surgical robotics companies, we were one of the uh, earlier investors in Precise, which we exited to Zeiss. Uh, the other company that we have in our portfolio is Microsure. That's uh, another niche uh, robotic application, so super microsurgery. And the third would be Angel of Medical Robotics, and they're a robotics platform for um, spine and bone. So they're looking at specific niche applications within spine and bone. And then we can talk a bit about the uh, sort of companies that are around that space. So they help with imaging or post-op recovery, et cetera. And I think one of the most interesting and in that would fit into a surgical robotics workspace is um, Salmon Tree Medical, which is a company that provides um, intraoperative margin assessment. They're revenue generating. Um, they have a growing and soil-based, and they can uh, provide instant margin assessment for uh, breast cancer surgery, or we're um, now, I can see if we can do that in, uh, for example, liquid lung biopsies. So that is obviously a space that robotics is entering because surgical robotics can be used to uh, decrease operation time or should be used to decrease operation time. 
And that interoperative margin assessment can be a great tool to incorporate in that intervention. We try to build a portfolio that aims to improve patient outcomes and increase human capability and decrease uh, the workload or the cost of the intervention. Those are sort of the three axes that we uh, assess the company on. Great. So can you go into a bit more detail on those surgical robotics companies? Can you tell me when you got involved with them um, and then the story to where they are today? Yeah, sure. So we typically come in very early. Um, I mentioned this before. So where other people say early, they, in our, in our eyes, that's quite late. So for us, early is, is prototype. This is often still within a, on a postdoc's workbench, basically. Where our strength is, is helping these companies find the right type of capital, build the right team, uh, help them set out, uh, an IP strategy find the right co-investors, help them negotiate their licenses or collaborations with the university. That is where we feel very comfortable at the very, very early stages. And you can see that with both, well, Microsure was a little later for us. For our sweet spot, it was a little later. It was, it was out of the university. Um, they already had a few clinical cases. For Precise and EMR, we came in very early. Yeah, we're, we're, not afraid of uh, taking a bit more risk, I think, and, and, and looking very much at the potential of the company rather than what they've already done. And, and you know, helping them create that value instead of buying into it. Great. So what, what is it that you're looking for? What's the key ingredients that you're looking for in these companies when they're very early stage? How are you assessing them and how are you thinking these have got the right makeup to to make a successful company out of? Yeah, it's a good question. So let me take Microsure as an example. So Microsure for us, if you look at sort of the three things that we find important is can we improve patient outcomes? I think the second is can we reduce the cost of surgery, overall cost of surgery? Uh, and can we uh, extend human capability? And I think Mike Schur is a prime example of those where improving patient outcomes now, Mike Schur is aimed at the microsurgical market, so microsurgical procedures. And these are very difficult to do. I mean, operating on, a, on blood vessels, which are less than 0.8 millimeters in, in, in size. I mean, you, you can even get your head around it, right? But uh, there are people who can do this, but there are very few. There aren't many people that can do this well. And it takes years and years of training. And it, you need special instruments. So a lot of the procedures that require super microsurgical skills aren't being done because there are very few people who are able to do this. There are few resources. It takes a long time. And because there are few, few of these being done, there is not a a huge lake of clinical evidence for these. But we see a trend in the literature, in patient cases, that this improves outcomes. So you know, extrapolating that trend, we think that 
improving microsurgery and making it more widely available will improve patient outcomes. Um, and that can be in plastics, but it can also be in um, uh, oncology surgery, so breast cancer surgery. Or So that was an important one for us. And then secondly, making, you know, extending the capabilities of humans. I think that is something where robotics come into play. So you can have a robot to make something easier, uh, to make it more accessible, but you want a robot where humans can't go, right? That is, that is what we think is the strength of robotic surgery. That is where the, uh, there is the most to gain. And with um, microsurgery, you know, the, um, the microscopes are really, really good. Um, but now the limitation is in the surgeon's hands. So like I said, there are a few people that can operate on that skill, but there aren't very many. Um, you need year over year of training. If you can expand that capability with a robot to have more surgeons being able to do this and to do more complex procedures, that would benefit patient outcomes because this procedure becomes more widely available and you can do more complex procedures. So that is that is another big plus for us on Microsure. And then I think the third is reducing operating times. Now, that's the thing with robotics. You need to set up the robot. You need to perform the surgery. You need to take the robot out again. So usually operating times go up. But we think that is um, there's this part of the innovation um, uh, and adoption rate, right? That is going to decrease. So we, we, we think there is uh, a lot to win still. We think we're still at the early stages of surgical robotics innovation and adoption. Making procedures possible that aren't possible now or more difficult, making them easier, we think that is where the win is. So that is how we sort of assess our companies. Um, we accept that there is a higher investment in the beginning, that we need a longer time for adoption, that we're working with difficult technology, capital equipment, you know, that's VCs are always a bit worried about capital equipment, long sales cycles. But we think in the end, this is where surgery has a lot to gain. Absolutely. And you said that one of the things, so the length of time in the OR and the length of time it's taking, how do you think we're going to disrupt that? Is that going to be through better training and education? Is it going to be through technological disruption? Or is it just going to be simply from hospitals and surgeons getting used to actually getting hands-on and, and setting these up? How, where do you think we can make the biggest gains? Yeah, I think I think in all three, but most importantly is just, just doing it, just, you know, getting used to using the robot as a helpful tool, as an aid during the surgery. Once you, uh, everybody, when, when you have to learn something, it takes you a long time. And once you get used to it, you just do it in a jiffy, right? And at some point we'll move to more operationalized use of the robotics, uh, tools in the surgical, in the OR or in the surgical space, because people will be getting used to it. The new surgeons coming up will be, are more used to using robots than the surgeons 10 years ago and, and the surgeons 20 years ago, right? And I think that that learning curve will be shorter and steeper as we move forward, just because of the accessibility of the robot 
people will be training more on robots, people will be doing more interventions on robots. And I think, you know, the company designing and um, uh, implementing the robots will learn from that adoption as well, you know, and making it easier to install the robot. Um, there is still a lot to win, we think. And yes, it comes with education, it comes with training, but it also comes with, um, you know, the, the willingness to change and adopt. And that is all driven by improving patient outcomes. Brilliant. So why, why have you guys chosen surgical robotics as one of your key areas? What's the reason behind that? That's a good question because you know, if you don't know the, the local ecosystem that we're in, that may come as an odd choice because there aren't many investors that are willing to move into surgical robotics and even less that are willing to make, um, you know, one of their uh, focal points uh, out of it. So we're in quite a, a special ecosystem, I would say. It's a very, very tiny speck of the world. So Brabham doesn't mean anything to anybody, but the Netherlands and maybe Eindhoven does mean something to people. So Eindhoven is where Philips is based and AML is based. Uh, Philips, obviously, they, um, they, 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 they became famous with their televisions and refrigerators and et cetera, and a, a compact disc player. So, but they moved to medical technology at two decades ago. And that is now what they do. They obviously license their brand name to household appliances, but the core Philips is no longer lighting where they started. Uh, so longer household appliances, it's medical technology. Philips um, span out ASML, which uh, makes um, uh, uh, the, uh, the wafer steppers for um, making chips. So there is a lot of precision engineering knowledge in the area. So technologies that require pinpoint accuracy and, and high complexity, so a low volume, high complexity, is really at the DNA of the region. So the entire value chain for medical robotics exists in that very tiny space. So we have an industry-based ecosystem. We've got the technical university and the high-tech campus. We've got a few leading companies in the robotic space. And then most important, I think, is the collaborative culture that we have. Now, because everybody's so close, it's a very tight-knit community, but people are willing to roll up their sleeves and help you out just because you are in that ecosystem. Because they know that when they need help, they can call on you. So it's it's very much, oh, let me try if I can help you. Oh, let me see if I can get this done for you, you know? Um, so it's quite short cycles uh, of helping each other out that really boosts that ecosystem and can help startup companies to grow faster than anywhere else. Having that on the basis of that industry-based ecosystem with the... Um, low volume, high complexity uh, companies and the, and the suppliers, et cetera, around it. We think on, a, you know, looking globally, we are one of the preferred 
uh, regions to develop surgical robotics. Okay. So that's really interesting. So with the point around someone asks for help and they can get it from someone else who's who's been in that situation, what, what does that actually look like? What kind of help are people giving out? And, and I want to know what, what that actually looks like in reality. Yeah, it's a good question because it, it can sometimes be quite intangible. And I think sometimes it is quite intangible because not it's not always formalized, right? So it's just being able, just knowing that if you pick up a phone and you give somebody you call, they will always answer. And they will always think about how they can help you. And if they can't help you, they will refer you to somebody else. It's So that's the, the unformalized culture that we have. And no, I'm actually not from the region. So I came into this region five years ago and I really noticed that instantly. I, I'm not just, you know, doing a sales blurb here. I've noticed it, but it's also in a more formalized way. So if you need a quick prototyping or if you, uh, if you are under pressure, under a timeline pressure and you call your supplier, they will help you. They will help they, because they know what you're going through because um, they've heard it from other companies or they might be in the same situation or they might invest into a company that might be in the same situation. There is a lot of um, the network's quite strong. So people know what you're going through and will help you. And, and that can be by, um, you know, moving something, moving a prototype phase quicker or uh, putting in extra resources or um, helping you out with a supply chain issue. Those are just a few of the examples, and I can't go into detail because I don't want to breach confidentiality, but um, that, is, that is, I think, uh, what we see within, uh, within that network. Uh, yeah. Great. So let's just say I'm a, a startup surgical robotics company who's got a prototype. We've just had an investment from Bond. What does that look like? So how do we, how do we get from that stage and what do the first year, two years look like? Okay. That's a good question. So when we, when we've just invested into a company, we never invest alone. So, um, there is always at least one co-investor that, that joins us in that deal. And then obviously you've been in touch with the company. We, we would have been in touch with you for a while. So there would have been a relationship of trust between that new investor syndicate and you as the company. You know, the next two years, there shouldn't be any surprises because uh, we would have we would have talked about all of those and made, made sure that we had the same vision for the company uh, once we would come in with our investment. And, you know, what would we have talked about? It would be... Um, Obviously, your development plans, we try to help them make them realistic because here we have, we, the companies I just mentioned, there is only, th those are only four, but we have a portfolio of 30 life sciences and medtech companies. So that means we, we can do a bit of pattern recognition. Um, so we kind of know where the issues would be if you're expanding your team or making um, uh, CapEx investments or trying to license in IP or, um, co-developing with a partner, we would sort of together walk through the risks of, of what we're trying to 
build and, and, and grow over the next two years. I think one of the good things is that we as an investor are, we're patient capital. And what I mean by that is that usually VC funds have a fund cycle, right? So they, they raise money, they have an investment period of five years, and then they have to exit those companies in the next five years, and then maybe they can overrun two years. So that's a five-five-two cycle you will hear very often. We basically operate as an evergreen fund. That doesn't mean we don't want to exit. Uh, we do. And because we invest with the market, we also want to exit in between five to seven years or shorter, depending on where we are. But because we, we come in quite early, each and usually between five, seven years. But there is not a lot of pressure on us to do so from our shareholders. So I think we're a bit more patient um, than our investors are. I think we, because we, we can do a bit of that pattern recognition, we get less nervous when something goes wrong because in these deep tech companies, uh, and then in sort of med tech companies, you might run into supply chain issues. You might run into global pandemics, into pandemics. You might run into CEOs leaving. Um, you might run into IP issues. Um, so there are a lot of things that you might run into. And I think as an investor, we're not phased by that. Uh, we've probably seen it before and that we can help the company go through that and also help our co-investors understand what's going on if they're not from the medtech space. Yeah, what, what does that look like if we invest in you? If we come in as a new investor, it usually looks like we're, you know, we should have a very open relationship with the company with a lot of trust. We always ask management, how can we help? What can we do to um, help you, help the company, help the team, help the other investors, help your board? One example is we never take a board seat. So we always uh, nominate. We have a nomination right, but we always nominate an independent. And that independent, so somebody that is not an employee of our firm, we always nominate somebody that contributes specific expertise that the company needs at that point in time. Um, so we don't parachute in a venture partner or somebody that we've known for years or somebody um, uh, that, that's an employee from us. Um, but we, we look at what does the company need and we, you know, we actively connect with people, even if we, if we don't know them. So we actively then search in our network or network or outside of that network for somebody who could add, uh, to that board. So we're a very, we're, we're an active investor, but we don't, we don't micromanage, uh, in that sense. Um, and it's, it's always based on, on sort of openness and, and transparency. And, you know, the, the, the ultimate goal for us is to improve patient outcome and then make a healthy return so we can reinvest that return into the next company that's going to make a patient impact. Brilliant. So when you're going on that investment journey, are you looking for opportunities to plug and play this ecosystem into the business and look for natural partnerships? How does that tie into the investment side? Yeah, it's a good question. So we often get the question, what does, because 
I always say we invest in companies that have a direct strategic link to our region and that can grow in our re- can grow faster in our region than anywhere else, right? But then people ask me, what does that actually mean? Because I understand it can sound quite abstract. So a direct strategic link goes beyond having one center in your multi-center clinical trial, or it goes beyond having a supplier for one, even though critical component. It is something that you won't find anywhere else. So having a manufacturer that does co-development that helps you set up your supply chain and maybe invests into your company. Or it can be that you set up your headquarters in our region, collaborate with the university on uh, novel technology that you're trying, that you're outsourcing, that you can't develop in-house, but you need for your next application. So those are just two examples of what constitutes a strategic link, direct strategic link to the region. So um, it's never plug and play, Henry, which is a good thing because we like complexity. Um, It has to be of added value for the company to be in our region. So if you were in another European country or you're in the US or you're in India and you have your supply chain set up and you have a great team of talented people um, and you're able to uh, fundraise globally or you might even be revenue generating, you need to tell me what the added value is. But if you're... Um, just spinning out of the university, you're still looking to add technology to your, to your proposition, to your product or to your, um, uh, to your portfolio. Um, you're looking to grow the team, um, and you're looking to fundraise. Then I think, you know, it's really worth having a chat with us because then I think the ecosystem has a lot to offer. Does that, does that clarify it a bit better? Yeah. So Mercedes, tell me about how you assess a company when considering an investment. Uh, yeah, that's a good question because um, we get a lot of engineers asking us, um, you know, what sort of boxes do I have to tick for you to give me money? So while it doesn't really work that way, um, it's not like if we check all these boxes and you come above a certain threshold that you are in, it, it depends on quite a few things. So um, the three I already mentioned, one looking at surgical robotics companies. So can we extend human capabilities? Um, can we uh, improve patient outcomes? And can we reduce the um, resources being used uh, in the intervention? But Obviously, there's a lot more to assess. So what we find very important and what any VC would tell you is team. Is the team aware of their strengths and weaknesses? Can we mitigate those weaknesses and can we build on those strengths? Those are, I think, the two most important questions um, while looking at the team. And then obviously, culture comes into play. Uh, how functional is the team, uh, but that can be a weakness or a strength, right? So that's the underlying, um, that can be one of the underlying issues. 
And then obviously technology. How robust is your technology? And can it be, can we scale it? Um, a lot of the companies that we see, like I mentioned before, are university spin-out companies. Sometimes founders are not happy to hear from us or from other investors or manufacturers that their technology is not ready to be scaled. You know, do we have to factor in a redesign or re-engineering process? And if so, what does that do to the economics of the case? Obviously, building up the team, critical weaknesses, uh, doing a re-engineering, that all factors into the valuation and the capital needed, the capital requirement. So sometimes um, when founders come to us, they come obviously with the most, with an optimistic, and they might say realistic, uh, but it's still very often an optimistic um, player event. Um, and... And like I said before, because we can we can now do a bit of pattern recognition, um, we can often pinpoint to sort of critical issues that we do our DD on. So that's the the engineering, the design, it's the supply chain, it's the team, but it's also IP. So are the critical components covered by uh, by IP, and is that IP strong enough? And then. Um, it's the co-investors that we look at. So are these co-investors able to ride out the journey with us or um, will they be at the end of their dry powder halfway through this journey and do we already know that we need to bring in significant, uh, a significant number of um, or significant amount of new capital um, at the end of this investment. So there are a lot of things that we um, that we assess. Patient outcome is sometimes quite difficult to assess because it's new technology. And if we could look into the future, I mean, our lives would be so much easier, but uh, we can't. Um, so it's talking to surgeons that maybe have a completely different view on things or uh, haven't even considered what this company is doing as, as a possibility and assessing that variety in responses. Yeah. Assessing that and drawing your own conclusions from that. That's obviously always a, a tough cookie, but it's some, something I think we do well. We, we really dive into the subject matter and we, we try to talk to a lot of campaign leaders, but also take into account their uh, their own drivers, and then try to come up with scenarios of what the company is presenting, what we would find feasible, and then obviously putting that into our own economics and saying, "Is this a deal we can, um, where we think the upside justifies the investment?" So. When you're assessing these investments, are there any common red flags that come up that instantly kill deals? Um, it never instantly kills a deal. So we are typically of the mindset, how how can we do it instead of we're not touching this? You know, it's it's almost more, the first question is always, if we see a red flag, the first question is always, can we mitigate this? Can we overcome this? So, for example, if it uh, if we 
in our initial DD, there's a, a, a red flag on the IP. You know, we would talk to the IP people, maybe get in the second opinion. Can we mitigate it? Can we write IP around it? Or um, can we strengthen the portfolio? Or do we need to drop this IP? Or so um, that's we 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 really dive into that. If it's team, so you know, are we willing to invest in this CEO? Um, there are a few signs of crisis in a company. Uh, the CEO is doing too much. Um, uh, there is a high turnover. Um, there is uh, inconsistency in the reporting. Um, well, there are a few others. So if we see that, then we say, okay, so what is the root cause of this? Very often it's the CEO or there is um, uh, the founders are not on the same page. Um, so we would sort of, we talk to them. We would make, you know, say, this is what we see. Do you agree? And if you agree, what can we do to, to fix it? If they don't agree, then that's where we start to think, maybe this is not for us, right? And, and then there are deal breakers. And maybe your next question is about deal breakers. Um, but it's very often, you know, red flags are talking points rather than us mocking away. Yeah, and go into deal breakers then. So you said the next question. So deal breakers is, um, you know, you get, you get to deal breaker when people start being rigid in a negotiation. Then it's, then it's also deal breaker for the other side. So it's not just a deal breaker for us. And then, you know, valuation can be a deal breaker for us because we're, um, we're a sovereign fund. Um, but this doesn't very, this, this doesn't happen very often, but, um, if there are investors that have a bad reputation, then we would rather walk away as well. Uh, if it's, um, a lack of transparency, that is for us a deal breaker. But then, like I said, on the other side, it's a deal breaker to be open and transparent. So it's a deal breaker on both sides. Once we get into the stages of a term sheet, we are very often on the same page. So that we do a lot of diligence and, and, and negotiation before we move to term sheet. So once we're in that phase, there's there is there is not a lot of dropout. Got you. So I want to move the conversation onto the current market conditions and try and get some advice for some of the companies that are looking to raise investment at the moment. So I speak to a lot of people who are trying to raise investment and across the board, really, apart from a couple of standouts at Distal Motion, No Medical, both raising $150 million, which is pretty incredible in this market at the moment. But how hard is it for companies to raise investment at this time? I think everybody's complaining that it's very hard. So um, I think the majority is finding it difficult. What I think is that we had an exceptional good time uh, the last two years. So during the COVID uh, pandemic, that wasn't a normal time. So I'm not really sure what we're complaining about. Because if you put it into historical perspective, one, it was an exceptional time. Secondly, a cycle is going to cycle. So this is going to change. Uh, I don't know when, like I said, if we could look into the future, uh, it would make my life as a 
as an investor easy, but it is going to change. And I think we're more of the opinion of never waste a good crisis. So if you're a company raising funds now, um, you are probably uh, looking at doing a couple of things. Um, being very tight on cost, extending your runway, calling on your existing investors. And that requires you to have a very good bond with your current investors. Um, and I think that is a sign of you as a company doing well. If you manage that, if you manage to get your current, you keep your current investor on board instead of walking away. I think that is a good, that is an achievement in itself. So if you're not able to raise outside investment, but you're, you're raising inside investment, that is a sign. I think that you're doing something right. Um, this is not necessarily about investors not willing to walk away from their investment because, you know, if you're in a, if you're in a syndicate with three or four, like you always are and, and all four say, okay, let's move forward. Then you're probably doing something well. Or you have four stupid investors on board. I mean, what's the chance of that, right? So, um, and I think it it also um, requires you to be very, very smart on uh, spending the money that you still have. Um, because if it, if it will take longer and you will raise less money than you intended, you're going to have to be smart with the money that you have. And, you know, Companies have been under a lot of pressure uh, over the last years because the access to hospitals was restricted. Their supply chain was under pressure. They um, they were not able to raise capital. So and the notified bodies have been um, there was there was a lack of um, capacity at the notified bodies in Europe. Um, even even companies then pivoting their clinical strategy to the US. Um, and we've had a few of those in our portfolio as well, but it, you know, it makes you aware of, um, spending your money wisely and then still keeping that speed and agility. Um, so I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, uh, if you're required to, to sort of bootstrap the company in that sense. And I think if you're raising money. I think there is always a need for um, technologies that uh, improve patient outcomes uh, and improve healthcare delivery. So um, I, th I think there are still investments available for those companies. It's just not that everybody's now getting money. And I think, like they say, tourists always go home. You see the non-traditional investor uh, participation has dropped off. Notably, in um, uh, over the last two, three quarters, um, so you need to you just need to stand out more. And I think surgical robotics companies can still raise money if you really differentiate on a um, in a niche market like Microsure is doing or like Precise has done, um, and then. Um, then, then, you know, it's, it's still a struggle, but, um, 
Yeah, I think my biggest, my best advice would be grit. Just keep going. And if you really believe in your business and your technology and your application, then just keep going. But, um, you know, if 90 people tell you you're wrong, then keep going. Maybe if, you know, three and a half thousand people tell you you're wrong, then you start need to, you, you, you need to start, yeah, thinking about it. But um, you will hear a lot of no's. But if, if, if you have... You know, some clinical evidence and you have uh, a robust scalable technology and you have a team that is willing to just go 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 then i i'm i'm convinced that you know 90 percent of the balance so for the last two years that you think we've been in a, a bit of a abnormal market and we're re-entering a more uh, a more common market right now is is that true with all this economy stuff going in the background, do you think that the market's going to get worse and, and go make it even more challenging? Or do you think we are going to see a rise in investments? That's a good question, if I knew. Um, so what we see are a couple of different trends. So there are a lot of VC funds that have raised significant amounts of money, uh, but they're looking to deploy that in more de-risks uh, companies and they're looking to deploy tickets 10, 15, 20 million dollars or euros in the early stages. Um, so if you're looking at rounds of three, five, 10 million euros, it's slightly more difficult because those funds actually want to move to a more de risk opportunity, but they can't just yet um, because at that ticket sizes and at that, at those valuations, Companies are just not, they are just not there yet. So those companies are looking to raise smaller rounds. Uh, and then you get into the challenge that you have a lot of investors that aren't able to join a larger Series A or larger Series B. So you, you run into um, a disbalance between your existing and your new investors. But what we do see is that you know, in our portfolio, we now have a bit of room to invest in companies that we can help grow. So very early stage. We always have a portfolio for early stage and later stage companies. And we're looking to balance that. Uh, but we're now able to invest in companies that um, are quite early. So 200K to a million, maybe. And then help them grow. And then they would need significant growth funding. Three or seven years time or somewhere in between. And it is, so it's our challenge to partner with investors that uh, understand that early stage, help these companies grow, and then engage with the larger funds. And because of the, uh, there are quite a few larger funds, they're looking at more de-risked opportunities. They just raised a lot of money. Our uh, portfolio companies are too early for them, but we're hoping that sort of when we're at the end of their fund cycle, they might. You know, still have a few spaces left for companies that um, are in our portfolio. So we're um, not necessarily a laser convergence of strategies there, but we're hoping that that will still uh, that that will still come together. Okay. So right now, then, what can entrepreneurs be doing to stand out to VC? What can they be doing to to become an attractive investment spot? Yeah. So what we always like to see is a very clear 
um, description of the opportunity. So a lot of people spend time uh, uh, educating us about the problem. But we often know what the problem is, or we can easily validate that. But if you have a very clear sense of what the opportunity of the solution is, there are actually many people that can articulate that very well. So I think that is where you need to spend a lot of time. So what are you actually solving uh, with this product or with this service that you're putting into the market? What are people willing to pay for that? What is that? You know, how are you going to validate and uh, operationalize that sales process? Um, how are you going to ensure the adoption rates that you project? Um, I think if, if, if that is a very clear story that you can tell me, it's a lot easier to assess the opportunity and whether it fits into a fun cycle or the rest of the portfolio, where do we can add value, uh, or whether it does generate the returns that we as a, the word that another VC fund would need. Um, I think that is, that is very often key. It sort of boils down to, can you tell a VC how they are going to make money from your, from investing in you? And that's, yeah, it's, it sounds um, simple saying it that way, but that is what it is, right? That's why a VC steps in. Now we have a broader um, surrounding and, and um, a broader aim. We also want to generate um, an increasing knowledge base and the region and we want to add to that ecosystem and we want to uh, improving patient outcomes is one of our is one of our drivers one of the things that we that we report on right so for us that's very important um but the returns potential is important because we always go invest um, and i think telling that story is really enough something that a lot of founders and ceos forget or don't articulate very well and if you you know if you need help articulating that uh, and if you're in our region give us a call we're always happy to help um, but you know check it with other entrepreneurs who might not be in your space who might not di be directly competing or you know if if you need to um there are several very well-known consultants in the space or just outside the space that you know would be happy to help you with your with your pitch deck and articulating that proposition. So yeah, Mercedes, thank you very much for being a guest so far. So I just want to close with one final final question. And um, so from previous investments in your career, do you have any lessons that you've learned that you now apply to your investments moving forward? Ah. Uh, yeah, um, we do actually. When as an investor we come in and it's very early stage and there's, there's always the dynamic between the investors, the board of directors and management. And that can be in a one tier or a two tier board like we have in, in, in Europe. It's, it, well, it's not very often that our founders or academic founders or first time entrepreneurs uh, know how to deal with investors and the board and you know some things are easy you know you set up a, a meeting cycle you prepare an agenda you do the notes etc but 
having a board composed of investor directors, independent directors, and then everybody with their own points of view and their own perspectives, which is healthy, but also with their own uh, sort of interests. Uh, so if you have an investor director, they, they, they need to be there in the interest of the company, but obviously they always have their fun mind. One of the things that's very often underestimated is how to set up a board um, and how to, to, to uh, inform or correspond with your investors um, and your board as management um, and make that effective. So we, um, we now spend a lot more effort in setting up the wide board and helping management communicate with that board if they have an inexperienced board or um, help the other investors uh, deal with inexperienced entrepreneurs if they haven't experienced that before. So um, having a uh, constructive, open culture uh, between those three stakeholders is very important. Um, and if you're an entrepreneur in, 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 in any space, um, so not just surgical robotics, look at, you know, assess those dynamics and, and actively improve those if you need to and ask advice. Um, if you see any red flags there. So it's maybe my second type of advice too. Brilliant stuff. So thank you very much for being a uh, guest on the podcast. I've, I've learned a lot from this and found it extremely valuable. So I think the listeners will too. Thank you, Henry.